Isaiah. We got down through chapter 42 last time. I I kind of hurried through chapter 42. But it's talking about the end time. It's talking about ultimately the place of safety in verse 11 and how God has held his peace, but it's time that he is going to begin to work a very strong work. And then even those whom he has appointed leaders, verse 19, who is blind but my servant, or deaf is my messenger that I sent? Who is blind as he that is mature, and blind as the Lord's servant? Now I think this applies to Zerubbabel of Zechariah 4, because it says, your hands began the foundation of the temple, they will also finish it. I think there is an implication there that for a period of time, uh, through fear, temerity, uh, lack of understanding, blindness and deafness in that sense of what God is really doing, uh, holds that procedure back for a time. But God says it will happen. Says verse 20, seeing many things, but you observe not, opening the ears, but he hears not. So even a servant of God sometimes doesn't see or hear what he needs to see or hear, whoever this man is. Now, the comment is, the Lord is well pleased for his righteousness sake, so it's essentially a righteous man, or God will not have called him to be Zerubbabel. He will magnify the law and make it honorable. Uh, a type of Moses as well. Uh, Christ, of course, fulfilled this when he was here on the earth. He magnified the law and made it honorable. So the ultimate type is Jesus Christ. But Zerubbabel also is a type of Christ. I saw someone had an ad in the journal this last time. Pulled, took out a full-page ad claiming that he is Zerubbabel. And the whole article was about him and his message and how important he is. And I thought, well, the very tone of the ad disqualifies the individual. Because Zerubbabel will come in sackcloth, that is, a type of humility and meekness and mildness, and proclaiming the glory of God, not the glory of his office. So, by the very definition of the attitude in which Zerubbabel will come to the church, I think that disqualifies that individual who took out that ad. We must be careful. I think we need to wait and see when God opens the eyes and the ears of whomever he has chosen for that job, and he begins to do the job that God called him to do. It will be done. I do not think that individual currently resides within our organization whatsoever. Let me be clear about that, including yours truly. I don't believe I was called to do that job at all. So lest anyone misunderstand, I want to clear that up. Let's go to verse 24. Who gave Jacob for a spoil and Israel to the robbers? Did not the Lord, he against whom we have sent? 
It answers again the question of why is what has happened to the church happened to the church. God did it. He spewed us out of his mouth. Why? Well, because we've said, for we would not walk in his ways, neither were they or we obedient to his law. We took it for granted. We went through the paces, but we allowed an awful lot of lust, vanity, greed, jealousy, and envy to be in our hearts and minds. We became spiritually proud, and we became seat warmers, figuring that if we were going through the motions with the Sabbath and the holy days, everything would be fine. But that is not good enough, obviously. Verse 25, Therefore he has poured upon him the fury of his anger and the strength of battle, and it set, has set him on fire round about, yet he knew it not, and it burned him, yet he laid it not to heart. The church has been on fire, and it's burned us badly what has happened. And yet most of the church simply has not waked up to, nor do they understand, what has happened. They just know it's not. Now let's transition to chapter 43 with that background. But now, thus says the Lord that created you, O Jacob, and he that formed you, O Israel, fear not. For I have redeemed you. I have called you by your name. You are mine. Now whom has God redeemed from this earth? And who has he made his? Who are the jewels that he's making up? Go to Malachi 3 and 4. He's making up crowns and making up jewels right now. And he's doing it under the terms of the new covenant. I want to go back for a moment. It talks about O Jacob and Israel here. But I've quoted Hebrews 12 many times to show that Zion and Jerusalem are code words for the church today. And I know that at some point, I'm sure, I've gone to some other scriptures to show that there are other code words for the church today. But I want to review that here for a moment. Let's go to Romans 9, because there are some other code words. Paul writing in the book of Romans, I say the truth in Christ, I lie not. My conscience also bear me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great heaviness and continual sorrow in my heart, for I could wish that myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Now he had, as an Israelite, kinsmen of the flesh, and he mentions that here. Who are Israelites, to whom pertains the adoption and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the service of God and the promises? Whose are the fathers, and of whom, as concerning the flesh, Christ came, who is over all, God blessed forever. Amen. Not as though the word of God has taken none effect, for they are not all Israel which are of Israel. He's saying, in so, in so many words, really, that all who are Israelites are not real Israelites. They may have the physical pedigree. They may be of Judah or Levi or Manasseh or Ephraim or Gad or Asher or Zebulun or whoever. But they're not real Israelites. Let's read on. Neither because they are the seed of Abraham are they all children. The physical pedigree of being an Israelite, meant nothing. Now, did not Paul say in one place that he was a Benjamite and he counted it as 
dung. Being a physical Israelite of itself will get you nothing but a handful of manure. That's all it's worth. He counted it dung because he understood there is a spiritual Israel that is important. Physical is being of a physical Israelite doesn't get you anything under the terms of the new covenant. Neither because they are the seed of Abraham are they all children. But in Isaac shall your seed be called. That is, they which are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God. Being a physical Israelite does not today make you a child of God. But the children of the promise are counted for the seed. So there is a spiritual Israel and there is a spiritual seed. Both are code words for the church today. Let's go to Galatians 4. Galatians 4, verse 26. Galatians 4.26 But Jerusalem, which is above, is free, which is the mother of us all. So, being of physical Jerusalem on this earth doesn't mean anything unless we are counted part of spiritual Jerusalem. Don't we know that city is coming down when Christ returns with his saints? and that we can be a part of that city, that 144,000. That Jerusalem, which comes down, is the mother of us all. Notice chapter 6, verse 16. Uh, 6, verse, well, let's start in 15. For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision avails anything, nor uncircumcision. Whether you were a Gentile and uncircumcised, or whether you were a an Israelite, circumcised, he says, meant nothing. But a new creation, a conversion, a change, so that you're not the creature you used to be, but you're a new creature. And as many as walk according to this rule, peace be on them, and mercy, and upon the Israel of God. Now, God has divorced physical Israel, hasn't he? And he is now marrying spiritual Israel. So the church is the Israel of God. Therefore, when we read these prophecies in Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and other places, minor prophets, Psalms, it's speaking of the church first. That is the Israel God is interested in now. Let's go to 1 Peter 2. 1 Peter 2. I don't think it can be emphasized too much that the message of the prophecies is for the church first. And that we need to take everything in those prophecies very personal. First Peter 2, verse 9. But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, where it talks about the priesthood, it can have reference to the church today and the members therein. People have used this to say, well, we're all priests, so we don't have to listen to the ministry. 
Yes, we are all a royal priesthood, or we are a priesthood in training, and to become kings and priests in the world tomorrow. But even in Paul's day, and Peter's day, and James and John's day, God had set those in the church to be priests over the priests, if you will. And Paul did say to give respect and honor to those who have, hate to say this, the rule over you. But that's scripture. So we are a royal priesthood. We are a holy nation. Now there's another code word for the church today. A nation. A holy nation. So when we read about the nations back in the prophecies, that is also a code word for the church. It isn't, it isn't first of all written to a physical nation. A, and people still use this word peculiar, and we are sometimes a bit odd, but that is not the proper translation. It means purchased or redeemed, a redeemed people. We just read in Isaiah about a people redeemed. What are we redeemed from? Satan and humanity. Redeemed from this world. And if we're redeemed from the world, we cannot have fellowship with the world, can we? Our fellowship is with God and with his people. It is not with the world. That is not where our fellowship should be. In fact, John even says you can't do both. Christ said you can't serve two masters. So we're a redeemed people that we should show forth the praises of him who has called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. What people should see when they look at us is marvelous light, not people who are still walking in darkness and allowing our families to walk in darkness. Which in time past were not a people, we were Israelites, but we weren't the people of God, but are now the people of God, which had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. So the spiritual Israel today is not a circumcision or uncircumcision. It doesn't matter whether you were born Israelite or Gentile. It has nothing to do with race. It has everything to do with grace. God makes it very clear that being a physical Israelite has nothing to do with being a spiritual Israelite. And if God, or if Paul, counted being a Benjamite as done, then we do not need to count being an Ephraimite, or a Manassite, or a Gadite, or whatever, as anything but done in terms of spiritual importance. The only thing that is important is that we are part of the Israel of God part of his true church, his called out ones, his redeemed. I'll review very briefly then Hebrews 12, so that we have all these together. Hebrews 12, he says, don't go to Sinai, in chapter 12 of Hebrews. He says, you're not going to Sinai anymore. I'm not going to read all those verses. Verse 22, all that, all that matters is where we are come. You are come to Mount Zion. So Zion is a code word for the church. Because we'll see here that he's, he is describing the church in these verses. You are come to Mount Zion 
and unto the city of the living God. So when it calls us a city in the prophecies, that too is a code word for the church. Church, city, city, church. Same thing. If it's a righteous city, or if it even is a corrupt city that needs to repent. The heavenly Jerusalem. We are called here the heavenly Jerusalem. Well, that fits very well with what we read in Galatians 4. We are of the city of God. And to an innumerable, innumerable company of angels, we're called to that because we all do have angels about us. And time and chance does not happen to us. If something bad happens to you, you need to be thinking, what is God trying to teach me and show me? To the General Assembly and Church of the Firstborn. So we are also an assembly, and we are the Church of the Firstborn which are written in heaven, God has a book of life, and only those who are partakers of the New Covenant in the New Testament church are written in the book of life, except a few patriarchs and righteous people from the old whom God has brought forward, like David, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and so on. And to God, the judge of all, and the spirits of just men made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of the New Covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. Abel had a righteous offering before God, a righteous sacrifice. But what we have in Jesus Christ and his blood being sprinkled is far greater and richer in meaning and importance than anything that righteous Abel could have done, because we have the very Son of God. He's the one who's redeemed us. So let's go back then with that background. <coughs> And pick it up again in Isaiah 43. But now thus says the Lord that created you, O Jacob, and he that formed you, O Israel, that is spiritual Israel, the church. We're in a time here where he's talking about the end of the age, about the two witnesses coming on the scene and the rebuilding of the spiritual temple of God. So he tells spiritual Israel, fear not. Now, ultimately, I understand this will have a, an application to physical Israel once Christ is on the earth. He will at that time tell Israel not to fear physical Israel. But I'll tell you what, physical Israel right now had better fear. Because they're about to go into the great tribulation. We're the only ones, if we are truly the spirit-filled people of God, who do not have to fear. For I have redeemed you. So he is talking here to those whom he has redeemed, to spiritual Israel, the church. I have called you by your name. You are mine. Who is his today? Who does he claim as his own? He doesn't claim physical Israel. Remember, he divorced them. Doesn't have anything to do with them. When you divorce, you go away. You split the sheets. You... Separate the cars in the house. You're not together anymore. And he is not together with physical Israel anymore. Not now. He is only together with those of us who will obey his laws, statutes, judgments, and commands. 
When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. Now, who is about to pass through the waters? The church. And through the rivers, they shall not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned. Neither shall the flame kindle upon you. Now, does not Matthew 24 talk about martyrdom? about persecution. There are a lot of scriptures that talk about persecution and martyrdom of the saints at the end of time. Physical Israel will be burned by the fire. They will not be perfected when they go through the waters. But God's chosen ones will be. That's why he tells us, fear not. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I gave Egypt for your ransom, Ethiopia and Sheba for you. God destroyed Egypt for the ancient Israelites. And you know what he's going to do in this end time? He is going to destroy Egypt before us again because Egypt pictures sin. Always has and will until the millennium when it's a third, a third, and a third with Germany or with the Assyrian and with Israel. But at this time, he destroyed, or at that time, he destroyed Egypt. And through his spirit, he will destroy sin in us. Since you were precious in my sight, you have been honorable, and I have loved you. Therefore will I give men for you, and people for your life. God is going to make his church a sharp, threshing instrument, as we've already seen in Isaiah and as is reiterated in Micah 4. And the powers of Satan and the powers of this world will not be able to stand against the church. Even when the church flees for its physical life, God will open the earth and swallow up the army that is sent after. God will sacrifice those people for our lives. That's what he's saying right here. Fear not, for I am with you. I will bring your seed from the east and gather you from the west, and I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, keep not back. Bring my sons from far and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Now, why would he say, fear not, if there were not something around that could be feared? Once all kingdoms and governments of men have been put down in the millennia, or in the tribulation and the seven last plagues, the people who then turn to God will have nothing to fear anyway. Right now, there is something there that could be feared if you choose to fear it. Even though he says, fear not the confederacy, fear me, in Isaiah 8. So this is a time for now. And it ties in with Haggai. Let me go back there for a moment. He's talking about a gathering here in uh, Isaiah. But what does he say? So there will be people who say the time isn't come to build a temple. There isn't time for that yet. He tells us to consider our ways. says he'll be with us in verse 13 of chapter 1. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Josedek, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people, 
And they came and did work in the house of the Lord of hosts, their God. People are going to come from all over to put the latter temple back together. So don't fear. Come and work. The end of Zephaniah tells us not to fear, but to work. We're told in, again in Haggai to be of good courage, fear not, and work. But we're here to do a job. God is going to bring his scattered people from all over the earth, north, south, east, and west. Bring his sons from far, and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Who are his sons and daughters today? People who are faithful, who are in the church. Then scattered through all kinds of organizations, and some of them not even in organizations anymore. But God knows who they are, and he's going to start bringing them. He says he will stir them to come. It isn't isn't an evangelistic program that anyone institutes. God is going to stir them. That does not deny what we saw a couple of weeks ago in Isaiah 40. There is a warning message that needs to go out. We're not here to build a big organization. I believe we're here to give the message that you have been hearing for the last nine years to the rest of the church, that they might be warned, that they might have opportunity. Then if God stirs them to come, they can come. But it is not our job, it is not my focus to build a big organization. Numbers and money are not a part of it. Righteousness is what we're here for. Part of the message, as we saw then, was repent and be changed. And it is not to flee from the wrath to come, as John the Baptist said. Brethren, if we came here to this organization or to this place where we reside, because we want to save our hides, we came for the wrong reason. And we need to change our motivation. What we came here to do is prepare ourselves to help others. To provide a place that is godly, that is his community, that they might dwell in peace. It wasn't to save our hearts. When it comes time to go to a place of safety, if we are accounted worthy, then our hides will be saved. But if that's the reason we came here, we're barking up the wrong tree. As I've said before, when it comes to time to go to a place of safety, just because you might be in the right place to flee from does not mean you will go. When the call comes to go, you will fall and break your leg, or you won't hear it for some reason. Or you'll go back in your house to get something and be killed, or whatever. (coughs) If God doesn't count you worthy, you won't go. So as John the Baptist said, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? I'm not here to save my hide. Now, if that happens, fine. 
I'm here to prepare myself to be a part of the kingdom of God and to be a part of the latter temple. And to do that, I must change, grow, repent, and be better than what I was in worldwide. Recreating worldwide, to be a broken record about it, is not enough. We came here to change, brethren. That is the message we've been hearing. Have we heard it so long it's falling on deaf ears? Do we sort of deflect it away? Have we gotten used to it? Or are we daily working at bringing every thought into the captivity of Jesus Christ and walking as he walked? If we lose that focus, we are in trouble. We need to refocus. We need to think it through. He is going to gather his faithful. Verse 7, even everyone that is called by my name, those whom he has included in the ecclesia, those whom he has placed in the body of Christ, and who are fitting in as a piece or a part or a body member in the body of Christ. Now, he's called many, but he's choosing few. Just because we were called and because we are part of Worldwide or some other organization does not mean we are going to be chosen to be a part of the ultimate body, the bride. The bride must put on white clothing. The bride must become spiritually mature. We must depart from this world and its ways. This is a place where people should be able to come and be so filled with joy that they see people living by all the statutes, laws, judgments, and commands of God. They should be able to come here with confidence. They should not become perplexed when they come here and find that this one does that, that one does this, this one does someone something else. They should find us unified, dwelling in peace and in love, non-judgmental, but living up to the standard of God's Word. Not taking those pieces we like and denying others because we don't like them. We each need to look at ourselves and ask ourselves very honestly and scrutinizingly, if people come here and see me and what I do and how I act and my attitudes, would they be able to say, oh, I found God's people. We don't need to look at each other and say, well, boy, they'd be upset with so-and-so. 
We need to each look at ourselves. Because change simply does not come to a group unless and until individuals make those changes. Individuals have to do it. Saying so-and-so is not an example or a good example doesn't help anything. Only what I do, because I can't change so-and-so. I can preach till I'm blue in the face. But if they don't choose to follow these words that are being read, we have nothing. Verse 8, bring forth the blind people that have eyes and the deaf that have ears. People who have been blind and deaf to what God is doing don't understand. They are to come to a central place and they are suddenly to begin to see and to hear. We, as part of the body of Christ, as one of the groups, must be a light to the church. Now, every group that has come out of Worldwide and has its own organization should be that. But you and I cannot change anyone but us. It does no good to condemn anyone but us. And if we as a group condemn each other, what we think about so-and-so or so-and-so, whoever the target of our ire might be today, may be true. That person may indeed have that problem. But focusing on him as the problem changes how much? Nothing. It is only when you and I focus on ourselves as the problem and change it that we accomplish something. So-and-so may indeed be that way, but you thinking it or expressing it doesn't change them, doesn't help them. Maybe it will if you come in absolute brotherly love to, to gain your brother and you help that brother then it may help. Because we are to have iron sharpening iron and help one another, support the weak, and so on, as Paul says. Help those who need help. But in the final analysis, you can only change yourself. I can only change myself. And even that is a very, very difficult choice. But somewhere, some way, sometime, there has to be a group of people who have taken individual responsibility and have changed themselves so that they look like parts of the body of Christ and members as such. And the people from all over the world, the east, south, north, and west, will recognize that and be drawn to it. We still have work to do if we are going to be anything like what I am describing. 
verse 9, let all the nations be gathered together. Now, nations, as we read in 1 Peter 2, is a code word again for the church today. Let all the church or churches be gathered together and let the people be assembled. We're also called the assembly of the firstborn in Hebrews 12. So, assembly of God is another code word for the church. Who among them can declare this and show us former things? Let, let, let's get all the churches together and see who knows what's going on. Who among them can declare this and show us former things? Let them bring forth their witnesses that they may be justified. Or let them hear and say it is true. Who has correct analysis of what is going on and why? Who can tell us what is about to happen? Who can tell us what happened in worldwide and why? Who can tell us what tomorrow will bring? And the organizations? I'm here to tell you, for the most part, they cannot. They think things are going on as they were, that it's time to go out and evangelize the world. It's time to go out and draw in more people. They have no awareness that God has already called most that he is going to call. Only a few at the eleventh hour will yet be called for those who give up their crowns. But out of those whom he called, he is choosing a few to build the latter temple. If they don't know the answer, let them listen, he says, and judge it as true. We need to get the word out to them so that they can at least hear it and decide if it is true or not. You are my witnesses, says the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. How many today understand who God is and what he's doing? Before me there was no God formed, neither shall there be after me. He says he's the only God. Well, if he's God, why aren't we listening to what he has to say? Why are we not searching this book to find out what God wants done, how, and when? Most churches today, most organizations, most ministers, and most people are not doing that. They're assuming that what was done in Worldwide is still the thing to do. But God blew apart Worldwide with cause and with reason because we were spiritually deceived and spiritually proud. Revelation 3. What we were doing and how we were doing it, God was somewhat displeased with. And then when the heathen started taking us clear back to Babylon, he became sorely displeased and blew us apart. Brethren, I don't care how long you've been in the church, 5, 10, 15, 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 years. 
What you were doing was not sufficient. What I was doing was not sufficient. We all got spewed. So we have something in common. Only those who search the scriptures and find out what God really is thinking and doing can be counted as his witnesses. Everyone else has to be counted as their own witness. He'll say that here in a minute. I, even I, am the Lord, and beside me there is no Savior. In other words, since he's the only one, we better listen to his words. But most in the church today are not even reading most of his words. For the most part, they've become like the Protestants who have their, each group of Protestants has his own little path through the Bible. Only reads certain verses, like the gospel shall be preached as a witness and then shall end come, therefore we've got to get busy doing that. One of the few verses they read anymore in terms of their focus or what they think they ought to be doing. They don't read all these prophecies that we're going through painstakingly, which tell us a different story. They're ignoring it. If we are reading them and understanding them, then doesn't that make us the witnesses of God? All of us? I have declared, verse 12, and have saved, and I have showed when there was no strange God among you. Therefore, you are my witnesses, says the Eternal, that I am God. Have we gotten all the strange gods out from among us? Isn't idolatry the first thing we've got to get rid of? Covetousness is idolatry, Colossians 3, 5, I think that is, or somewhere right in there, 5, 3, I might have transposed it, but in Colossians anyway. If we're still lusting after coveting the things of this world, then we are committing idolatry. Because this world, and essentially everything in it, is opposed to God. The governments, the entertainment, the music, virtually everything is opposed to God. Can we yet say there is no strange God among us? Can we yet claim to be witnesses that God is God? What are we going to do about it? I think you in this room, and those of you listening out on the telephone to one degree or another, have more understanding of God's Word today than anyone else on earth. And with that comes a very strong responsibility and accountability. To whom much is given, much is required. Now, what are we going to do about it? Are we a living witness on this earth that God is God? Or are we living witnesses 
that idols mean something. Someone, somewhere, has to become, or have to become, witnesses that God is God. Yes, before the day was, I am He, and there is none that can deliver out of my hand. I will work, and who shall turn it back or stop it? Verse 14. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, for your sake. Now, if we are endeavoring to and struggling to obey God and serve Him and not let any of His words drop to the ground, not even those that we don't like so well. For your sake, for the sake of those who will do that, I have sent to Babylon and have brought down all their nobles and the Chaldeans whose cry is in the ships. Reminds you of Revelation 17, 18. I, I think I went through and proved fairly well from Scripture that the United States represents the Babylonian government today. That we are that great Babylon who exports Sin, immorality, lasciviousness and lawlessness of every kind to the rest of the world. It is for our sakes that God is going to bring Babylon down. God is showing there that he has a very, very deep interest in us if we are part of the faithful chosen ones. He's going to do that for us. He's going to bring Babylon down. It is by the power of His Spirit that we can conquer Babylon and drive it out of our lives. You see, great miracles are not the test of Christianity and the Spirit of God. The true test of God's people is the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, and so on. Those are the tests of the Spirit of God, not great miracles. There will be great lying signs and wonders and miracles done by Satan and the beast. And they are actual miracles. Those were actual snakes that Pharaoh's men, sorcerers, made from rocks. Actual snakes. Just as Moses' rod became an actual snake. But Moses' snake ate their snakes. Miracles are not for those who believe, but for those who believe not. The fruit of God's Spirit in our life is what shows the Spirit of God. Not great miracles. Doesn't mean there won't be great miracles. There will when the time is right. You know what the biggest miracle is? The biggest miracle is for God's Spirit to come and live in you, and Christ live and walk in you, and change you to be like He is. 
to be humble, to be meek, to be easily entreated, to get rid of pride, vanity, ego, and so on. That's the biggest miracle for a human being to actually change. Now that can only be done through the Spirit of God. God will give us other miracles only when we have performed the miracle of changing. We're not ready for big miracles yet. God is still sending a spirit of burning through the church. He is sending trials, sore trials, difficulties, problems among us to refine us, to teach us, to show us. When we have problems and trials and difficulties, we needn't look around and say, God must not be here. We must look around and say, what is God trying to teach me? I'm having the trial. Therefore, I must be missing something. Verse 15 of Isaiah 43. I am the Lord, your Holy One, the Creator of Israel, your King. Thus says the Lord, which makes a way in the sea and a path in the mighty waters. He could split the Red Sea. He can do anything he needs to deliver his people. He's the one that can do that. Which brings forth the chariot and horse, the army and the power. He's going to come riding on a white horse, his vesture dipped in blood, Scripture says. That's how he's going to come against this world. When he returns with his saints. First time he comes, he'll be seen from east to west, and his saints will rise to meet him and go up on the throne of the sea of glass for a year's honeymoon. And at the end of the day of the Lord, which follows the tribulation, he will return to make war against any who will still rebel against him. That's how he will come and us with him. He brings forth the chariot and the horse, the army and the power. They shall lie down together. They shall not rise. They are extinct. They are quenched as toe. He will put down everyone who withstands against him. Remember you not the former things, neither consider the things of old. Don't worry about what's happened in the past, he said. Behold, I will do a new thing. Now it shall spring forth. You Shall you not know it? I will, I will even make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. Isn't that what he did before Christ came the first time to a smaller, de- excuse me, to a smaller degree? He sent John the Baptist out into the desert and the wilderness, both a spiritual and a physical wilderness, to proclaim a way that was to come and an individual who was to come. Prepared the way for Christ. He's going to do the same thing now. I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. He's going to open truth, knowledge, and understanding in a spiritual, and I believe a physical, wilderness and desert. The beasts of the field shall honor me, the dragons and the owls. 
because I give waters in the wilderness and rivers in the desert to give drink to my people, my chosen. That's why he says we'll have a voice crying in the wilderness to turn to God, to repent, to change. Not just to save their hides. He who seeks to save his life will lose it, and he who seeks to lose it in sacrifice and giving and serving will save it. If we come just to save our hide, then John the Baptist's words apply to us. Who warned us to flee from the wrath to come? And there was no wrath that was about to come when, jo when John the Baptist preached that, except ultimately the persecution that came from Rome. But the wrath of God is about to come now. So the words have more meaning today than they did then. Verse 21, This people have I formed for myself, they shall show forth my praise. This will be a people characterized by thankfulness, by praise to God, by honoring Him, and giving great thanks for what He has done for us. So thankfulness is a big part of the attitude that we simply must have. Thankfulness for what God has done. Show forth His praise. We're people He's formed for Himself. First Peter 2.9 A royal priesthood. A holy nation. A redeemed or purchased people. Purchased with the blood of Christ. We are a spiritual nation. A spiritual church. A spiritual city. That God has formed for Himself. But there's a problem still. God says, look what I've done for you. But you have not called upon me, O Jacob, but you have been weary of me, O Israel. You have not brought me the small cattle of your burnt offerings, neither have you honored me with your sacrifices. I have not caused you to serve with an offering, nor wearied you with incense. God took those physical sacrifices and offerings off our backs. He gave us Jesus Christ to be a continual sacrifice that we ask for every day. But it becomes too wearisome. We have other things to think about. We have other focuses in life. To truly pursue God like a bride would a husband, becomes wearying. It's easy to sit back and just listen. It's easy to warm a seat and go through the motions. But to seek God the way a miner seeks gold, and how does a miner seek gold? Very often he's standing waist deep in recently melted water, cold and shivering to the bone, on the edge of hypothermia, trying to pan gold out of icy water. Or, with a pick and shovel, deep in the bowels of the earth, chipping granite, hour by hour, hoping to find gold. It's a fever that men get. And we need to seek God in that same way. That's what Christ told us in the Sermon on the Mount. 
to seek him as fine gold. But he said, you aren't paying enough attention to me. That was the problem with us in worldwide. He's telling us right here what the problem is. We were paying attention to ourselves and not enough attention to God. You have brought me no sweet cane with money, neither have you filled me with the fat of your sacrifices, but you have made me to serve with your sins, you have wearied me with your iniquities. We go on and on, not changing. We simply won't come to grips with ourselves about what is wrong and actually do something about it. We go on with our same attitudes, our same problems, our same sins, week after week, month after month. We're not willing to give up this part of Babylon or that part of Babylon. We enjoy it too much. We like it too much. It's a weariness to actually change the things in our lives that are ungodly. We're not willing to go through it ourselves, and we're not willing to make sure our families do it as well. God helps. Verse 25, I, even I, am he that blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and will not remember your sins. If we will strive, if we will grow, if we will overcome, isn't that what he tells all the churches, Revelation 2 and 3? To him that overcomes will I grant to sit with me in my throne and give him a new name and a white stone and all the blessings that he says he will give in Revelation 2 and 3. He tells every one of them, if they will overcome, he will blot out our sins. That's why we have the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. So he says, put me in remembrance. Remember me every day, every thought. Make me the focus of your life, God says. Let us plead together. You plead to God for his righteousness, his spirit, his help, and he will plead with you to follow him. In other words, there's give and take here between us and God. It's a relationship. A husband and wife have to learn to communicate and pull together. <coughs> How many couples have a problem with communicating? with understanding each other, with having compassion and forgiveness upon each other, and encouraging each other. How many just go through life without much communication because they can't seem to get it done? And how big a problem is that with the bride and Jesus Christ and his father? Same problem on a physical level that it is on a spiritual level. We've got to learn to plead together, to draw together, Declare you that you may be justified. Get off the fence. Make a commitment. Declare that you will go God's way no matter what. You'll change anything you need to change to quit being a Babylonian. I heard someone recently say, well, I'm going to go Babylonian. Oh, my God. What a statement to make. What a way to flippantly 
throw off doing what we need to do. We've got to declare ourselves. Are we going to be godly or are we going to be Babylonian? And I didn't say, oh my God, the way people say it today as a curse and swear word. I said, oh my God, have mercy. Oh my God, forgive us. Help us change our attitudes and our ways. Verse 27. Your first father has sinned and your teachers have transgressed against me. I think that is a direct reference to Herbert Armstrong and the ministry of the Worldwide Church of God. Our first father has sinned. God was somewhat displeased with the former temple, as he says in Zechariah 1. And your teachers have transgressed against me. The evangelists, the pastors, the teachers, the elders transgressed against God. If you don't believe it, read Malachi 1, read Jeremiah 23 and Ezekiel 34. Yes, we did. We must repent. We must lead peoples, God's people, in the right way. We must ourselves repent and cry repentance to them. God blew it apart because of it. Jeremiah 2, verse 8. See another reference. The priest said not, where is the Lord? They just went on doing what they wanted to do. They didn't really ask seriously, where is God in all this? And they that handled the law knew me not. They didn't really know God. The pastors also transgressed against me, and the prophets prophesied by Baal and walked after things that do not profit, not really turning to God. Back to Isaiah 43, verse 28. Therefore, because of the sins of our first father and our teachers, therefore, as a result of, as a direct result, Therefore, I have profaned the princes of the sanctuary and have given Jacob to the curse and Israel to reproaches. A church that has fallen apart. Someone asked me again the other day, well, what church is this? And I says, well, do you ever hear of Herbert Armstrong? Do you ever hear of Garner Ted Armstrong? Well, yeah, I did hear of them. Well, those who took over afterward changed things, and we all fell apart. And we're a little remnant of that. So you have to go clear around Jones's bar to try to explain who we are. We're a reproach. Well, there's hope. Chapter 44, in spite of all this, he says, Yet, now, here. So anyone who finds himself in the condition that we just read about needs to put God in remembrance day by day, moment by moment, 
needs to pay attention to every word of God and bring every thought into the, into the captivity of Christ. Realize that what we were was not enough and step up the efforts to be different than what we were. Realize that God blew us apart as a result of what we were and be different. Rise above what we were. So he says, Yet now hear, O Jacob, my servant, and Israel, whom I have chosen. We are the Israel of God who is in the process of being chosen, are we not? Was talking to us right here. Thus says the Lord that made you and formed you from the womb, which will help you. He says he will help us. If we will put him in remembrance, if we will plead with him, if we will seek him with our whole heart, as we've read in many scriptures, he will hear us. He will help us. Fear not, O Jacob, my servant, and you, Jeshurun, whom I have chosen. He calls Jacob Jeshurun. Spiritual Israel is whom he is addressing here, and he calls us Jeshurun. What does Jeshurun mean? The word means upright, just. That's what it means. In other words, God called us to be a nation of just and upright men. Men who fear every word of God. Who does he look to? He that is of a contrite heart, not spiritually proud and vain, and who trembles at his word. Someone who is just and upright. We can go back to Deuteronomy 32, which I want to do. I looked up Jeshurun in a Bible dictionary, and one of the comments it made was that this name, Upright, or Jeshurun, is intended to remind Israel of their calling and involve the seriest or the severest reproof of its apostasy. I thought that was a very interesting comment. So let's go back to Deuteronomy 32 and see just what God does say about Jeshurun. Chapter 32 of Deuteronomy. Give ear, O you heavens, and I will speak, and earth, the words of my mouth. God says, I am going to speak. Those who are of a contrite spirit tremble at the words of God. We're about to consider some of the words of God. This should make us tremble. Not go to sleep, or not say, I don't want to hear that anymore, but tremble. My doctrine shall drop as the rain. My speech shall distill as the dew, as the small rain upon the tender herb, and as the showers upon the grass. Does he not say in the end time he is going to send waters into the wilderness and the desert? And he's going to make pools and springs. He is going to open understanding that has not been opened before. Because I will publish the name of the Lord. Doesn't he say there in Isaiah 40 to, 
the part of the message is, Behold your God. Understand who God is and what he's doing. Ascribe you greatness to our God. He is the rock. His work is perfect. For all his ways are judgment. A God of truth and without iniquity. Just and right is he. They have corrupted themselves. Their spot is not the spot of his children. They're a perverse and crooked generation. Not just and upright, in other words, but crooked. Do you thus requite the Lord, O foolish people and unwise? Is not he your father that has bought you? Are we not the redeemed one purchased in the blood of Christ? Has he not made you and established you? Did we make a church or did God make a church? Did he call people out and make them a part of his called out ones? Remember the days of old. Consider the years of many generations. Ask your father and he will show you. Seek and you shall find, Christ said. Same words, basically. Your elders, and they will tell you. Well, can most of the elders tell you today? They don't know. They don't understand. When the Most High divided to the nations their inheritance, when he separated the sons of Adam, he set the bounds of the people according to the number of the children of Israel. God has placed things as they are, and he has placed us in his body spiritual Israel, as he has pleased, 1 Corinthians 12. For the Lord's portion is his people. Jacob is the lot of his inheritance. This is in Deuteronomy, but if it's today, if it's spiritual Israel, not physical Israel, who is divorced. He found him in the desert land and in the waste howling wilderness. He led him about. He instructed him. He kept him as the apple of his eye. God sent Israel down into Egypt. To be humbled and ultimately to be delivered by his mighty hand. As an eagle stirs up her nest, flutters over her young, spreads abroad her wings, takes them, bears them on her wings, so the Lord alone did lead him and there was no strange God with him. And he gave them blessing. But let's notice in verse 15. But Jeshurun... That which was supposed to be upright, that which was named upright by God. Wax fat and kicked. You are waxed fat, you are grown thick. You are covered with fatness. Then he forsook God which made him and lightly esteemed the rock of his salvation. We became spiritually fat and thought we had need of nothing. We were doing just fine. Revelation 3. They provoked him to jealousy with strange gods, going after the god of materiality, the gods of entertainment, all kinds of gods. With abominations provoked they him to anger. They sacrificed to devils, not to God. Haven't we spent our time with the devil's entertainment and the devil's way of life, the devil's economic system? Materiality and greed, jealousy and envy. To gods whom they knew not, to new gods that came newly up. New inventions that we use as our gods. Whom your fathers feared not. Of the rock that begat you, you are unmindful, and have forgotten God that formed you. And when the Lord saw it, he abhorred them because of the, the provoking of his sons and of his daughters. When he spews you out of his mouth... That is abhorrence. 
Have you ever puked in the toilet or on the floor? That which came up your throat and tasted half rotten and full of bile, you abhorred. That's the way God felt toward us. Sorry, but it's a fact. When the Lord saw it, he abhorred them because of the provoking of his sons and of his daughters. And he said, I will hide my face from them. I will see what their end shall be. Doesn't God tell us in the prophecies of the end time church over and over again, I've hidden my face from you? This prophecy of Deuteronomy 32 is just as real as any of it. For they are a very arrogant generation, children in whom is no faith. Will I find faith when I come? They have moved me to jealousy with that which is not God. They have provoked me to anger with their vanities. And I will move them to jealousy with those which are not a people. I will provoke them to anger with a foolish nation. Some of the same words you'll find in Hosea. I won't read the rest of this. Uh, Well, I'll read a little bit of it. Verse 27. Were it not that I feared the wrath of the enemy, lest their adversaries should behave themselves strangely, and lest they should say, Our hand is high, and the Lord has not done all this. There are those today who will say, Our hand is still high. We're still doing everything God wants us to do. We're preaching the gospel. And they look around and say, God hasn't done all this to us. We're fine. Nothing wrong with us. It's those other people out there that are the problem. That's the attitude of most in the church today. I'm okay, you're not. For they are a nation, a church, void of counsel, neither is there any understanding in them. Oh, that they were wise, that they understood this, that they would consider their latter end. When we find ourselves in this much trouble as a church, man, we ought to be scratching gravel to find out what's wrong with us. How should one chase a thousand and two put ten thousand to fight, flight, except their rock had sold them and the Lord had shut them up? For their rock is not as our rock, even our enemies themselves being judges. For their vine is of the vine of Sodom and of the fields of Gomorrah. Their grapes are grapes of gall. Their clusters are bitter. Their wine is the poison of dragons and the cruel venom of asps. Is not this laid up in store with me and sealed up among my treasures? To me belongs vengeance and recompense. Their foot shall slide in due time, for the day of their calamity is at hand, and the things that shall come upon them make haste. For the Lord shall judge his people and repent himself for his servants when he sees that their power is gone and there's none shut up or left. Doesn't he say all these things, concluding in the book of Daniel, that the power of the holy people will be scattered? Isn't the power of the holy people pretty well scattered today? We're very near the end of all this. Well, that's probably enough of that. And I'm about the end of this. But let's get a lesson here. God named us Jeshurun. It's another name for Israel. And he expects us to live uprightly and walk justly. I'll conclude this in Zechariah 8, where he utters those same words, essentially. Zechariah 8. He's talking about the fasts of the various months here. 
He does it in 7 and 8, and we need to consider perhaps keeping these fasts. But he says in chapter 8, verse 16 of Zechariah, These are the things that you shall do. Speak you every man the truth to his neighbor. Get rid of the lying and the false witnessing. Speak truth. Execute the judgment of truth and peace in your gates. And let none of you imagine evil in your hearts against his neighbor. And love no false oath, for all these are things that I hate, says the Eternal. In other words, live justly and uprightly, so that when God calls you Jeshurun, it will have some meaning, that we are upright and just. But we'll leave it off there for now.